Take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, as you're turning there, let me just go ahead and acknowledge the obvious. I found a bow tie in my closet, don't remember where it came from, felt the need to wear it, all right? I know that's on your mind, so we can get that out of the way, all right? Nehemiah chapter 6, we come uh, to the end of the first half of the book of Nehemiah. And you know we've been journeying through Ezra and Nehemiah together because they tell one big long story. But in Nehemiah's portion, this is the end of the first half. And uh, a tide is going to turn. Something you've been looking for for the whole book is finally going to happen. The wall is going to be completed. And yet that's not the end of the story. But think about how we got here. We know these last several chapters have been filled with opposition. Opposition from within, opposition from without. You may wonder, what's left? What else can they do? If the enemies of God have stirred up the people of God, they've provoked them externally, they've sought to put them into fear and to scare them away, and that hasn't stopped the work of the wall. And then they watched as the people of God internally began to uh, implode on each other a little bit as they oppressed one another. You may wonder, what is left for the enemy to do? As we see so often, the enemies now turn their cannons against the leader. The enemies of God attempt to subvert the people of God by going after the man of God. We see what happens to Nehemiah in chapter 6 this morning as we build to the climax of this first half of the book. So if you found your way to Nehemiah chapter 6, once again, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word as we read Nehemiah chapter 6? The Lord writes, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakepharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work. And it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Then I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined in his home. He said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. 
But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated as I pray for us. Father in heaven, we come to your word once again, uh, needing your help, because we need to go back nearly 2,500 years to understand your word and the history that it's telling for us, Lord, but your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we acknowledge that we may come to this passage feeling it has nothing for us. We're not leading a massive building project like Nehemiah. We're not facing the opposition that Nehemiah is facing. But Lord, you've told us that your word is good. It is profitable. It equips us. So we pray even now that by your spirit, would your word bear profit in our lives today? Would you equip us for your service, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we've mentioned before, as we think about narratives, we think about the great stories of Scripture, we're not looking for points, we're following the scenes. We're watching as the action progresses. And here in the first portion of Nehemiah chapter 6, you have three great schemes of Satan. And we've already seen some of Satan's schemes as he's worked against the people of God. But this morning, as the focus zooms in on just one man, on Nehemiah and the attacks against him, the schemes against him. We're going to follow these three schemes and see uh, what happens with the prophet Nehemiah. So as we begin, we're reminded of some enemies that we may have already forgotten about. These names there at the beginning of scene one, you see Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and it says the rest of our enemies. So there's a lot of enemies. There's more than one. And yet, uh, we may have forgotten already who these people are. Well, they were introduced to us back earlier in chapter 2. Some of them were mentioned there. And then some of them as well in chapter 4. The enemies have risen up once again. And they've heard about the progress on the wall. Remember that Sanballat, he is the governor of Samaria. That means he's north of Jerusalem. He's not there in town. He's not watching the wall go up on his own. Somebody is telling him. It says that they heard about these things. There's reports going back to the enemy. And so you begin to wonder as you're reading the passage, who is telling them these things? And then you begin to think, wait a minute, if the work is almost done, and yet there are still spies in the land, are the walls even going to make a difference? This big thing that we've been building to, seeking to see the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt, are they even going to make a difference? Well, the enemies hear that Nehemiah, he says, I had built the wall, and he's not taking credit for it all by himself. We've seen that all the people are working under the leadership of Nehemiah. The wall is almost done, but the, the doors and the gates have not quite been set up yet. So you have these enemies, they're, they're popping up again, Sanballat and Geshub, and they send word to Nehemiah. Listen to what they say there in verse 2. Come and let us meet together at HaKepharim in the plain of Ono. Now, if you're using a different translation, it might just say one of the villages. 
in the plain of Ono because that's how that big weird looking word could also be translated. It could be the name of a specific village or it could just be the name uh, or it could be a general phrase for saying one of the little villages out there in the plains of Ono. While we couldn't take you there specifically to that certain location today, the point is clear. This is out in the middle of nowhere. They're trying to get Nehemiah away from Jerusalem, get him towards Samaria. It's almost as if they're saying, well, let's, let's meet in the middle, Nehemiah. You've worked so hard on this wall. Of course, it's clear that we opposed you, but we understand you've worked very hard. The wall's almost done. Let's get together. Let's work, uh, work something out. The enemies of God recognize that they're running out of time, and now their tune has changed. They've begun to sing the great song, Why Can't We Be Friends? They're asking Nehemiah, come meet together in the plain of Ono. You understand, if he had gone, he would have been isolated. He would have been vulnerable. There would be no security around him. There would be no sheriff in town to see what happens to Nehemiah. So he recognizes, as the end of the verse says, they intended to do me harm. And that word for harm encompasses everything that you could possibly imagine whether they intend to rob him or murder him or whatever they have in mind, this word uh, covers it all. They intended to do me harm. And so you see Nehemiah's response. There's, There's a nice rhythm in this passage for where the enemies say one thing and then Nehemiah responds back and forth, back and forth. And so Nehemiah responds there in verse three, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. You might again once, once again think that Nehemiah sounds a little bit prideful. I'm doing a great work. Well, the idea behind it is that it's a, it's a big job. It's a huge task. It's an important work. Why should I stop and come to see you? Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And I love that Nehemiah's reason, the answer that he gives them, the excuse he gives that I can't come see you is the very reason that they want him to come see them. You understand they want him to stop the work on the wall. And he reminds them, I'm sorry, I'm in the middle of a great work. I can't come down right now. I can't leave Jerusalem. And so he answers them this way, but they are persistent. The enemies of God are persistent. They sent to him four times in this way, and he answered them in the same manner. So this first scene here, what does the enemy want to do? They want to destroy his very life. They want to get him isolated and kill him. But there are some things worse than dying. Nehemiah doesn't seem to be intimidated by losing his life. He says, no, I'm going to keep working. He's not really upset by these death threats that keep persistently coming, this trap to get him isolated so that they can assassinate him. But if you keep watching the scene, they try a different plan. They try political hardball. They say, let's destroy his reputation. If we can't destroy his life, let's make his life miserable. Let's destroy his reputation, starting in verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. An open letter. Now, a closed letter with death threats in it is bad enough, but this open letter is not any better. Because this open letter is exactly what you think. It's open. And so it can be read by anybody. As it's being delivered from Samaria to Jerusalem, the servant is announcing it everywhere he goes. Every town he goes into, he says, let me tell you what this letter says. Here's what Sanballat and Tobiah are saying about Nehemiah. So by the time the letter actually gets to Jerusalem, the gossip has spread all over the world, so to speak. All over the nations, they have heard what's in this letter. Well, let's see the contents once again. Sanballat writes, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it. 
So first he says it's spread all over the world. Then he tries to bring in this guy, Geshem, that we really don't know who he is, but clearly his name is added as authority. It's saying even this guy believes it. Geshem must be a big deal, and he thinks you're a traitor as well. So you should be getting nervous, Nehemiah. It's spread all over the world. Geshem also believes it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. Now, we've heard that before. That's what Sanballat said all the way back in chapter 2. When Nehemiah showed up, they, they began whispering, Oh, you're a bunch of rebels. You're trying to rise up against the nation of Persia. You're trying to overthrow your conquerors. And Nehemiah has made clear, no, that's not what we're doing. And there's nothing that's happened in these chapters to make us think that Nehemiah and the exiles are rebels. And yet they're continuing to spout the same old lie. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you, Nehemiah, you want to be their king. So they keep adding to it. They keep adding to the lies. You want to be king, Nehemiah. More than that, verse 7, you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning yourself in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. So they're accusing him of hiring false prophets to build him up, to talk him up in Jerusalem to say, hey, you know Nehemiah would make a great king. Have you considered Nehemiah? He would be a good leader. He's governor now, but imagine what he could do if he were king. They're spreading their lies in this open letter. And now they're threatening Nehemiah. They're saying, we've heard these things, but the king is going to hear about these things. What do you think the king's going to do, Nehemiah, when he hears about your plot? So the enemies of God, Sanballat and Geshem and others, they say, come now. Let us take counsel together. We can help you out, Nehemiah. We could be good friends to have in a difficult situation. We could have your back, Nehemiah. You need to get together with us. So they've sought to destroy his life. Now they're seeking to destroy his reputation. They're spreading lies about Nehemiah across the land. And you understand how it works with lies. It doesn't matter if it's true. The damage has already been done. The word has already been spread. All of these untruths about Nehemiah the man of God. Well, how's he going to respond? That's a good question. You may ask that sometimes. Perhaps you've sought to be a good, faithful employee on the job for decades, and then rumors start to spread, and you don't even know why. You don't understand why that happens. You're wanting to be faithful to the Lord, and, and, and false things start being spread, and you ask yourself, should I even acknowledge them? Should I even respond? Well, in this case, Nehemiah responds quickly and clearly. Verse 8, then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind, period. Nehemiah responds simply, that's not true, you're making it up. And he goes on. That's a pretty good response. I'm really appreciative of that. No such things as you say have been, have been done, you are inventing them out of your own mind. Well, what's the reason that they're doing all of this? Verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us. Did you hear that as we were reading the passage aloud earlier? How many times it keeps coming up? Clearly, the enemies of God want to intimidate Nehemiah. They want to cause him to fear, hoping that that will stop the work. <clears throat> For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work. It will not be done. And we've seen it before. We've seen it with all the people back in chapter 4. But now, specifically with Nehemiah, they say, perhaps we can discourage him. Perhaps he'll get so upset about these lies. Perhaps he'll get so upset about these death threats that he'll just stop. He'll just stop 
the work. His hands will drop. He'll be discouraged, and the work will not be done. The wall is pretty much complete, but the gates are not. And the wall is only as good as its gates. They're running out of time, but there's just a little bit of time left. And they think if they can stop the leader, they can stop the work. Nehemiah prays, Now, O God, strengthen my hands. We've seen Nehemiah. This is a character trait of his. He peppers his life with prayer over and over again. It's almost like he's already read 1 Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Nehemiah does that. He doesn't sit around all day, 24-7 in a prayer meeting. But everything he's got going on, he takes it to the Lord in prayer. Even the death threats, even the discouragement. He says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. They want to discourage my hands. Lord, would you strengthen my hands? Nehemiah has confidence that God is able to do just that. That's the message of Ezra and Nehemiah. We've seen it over and over again, time and again. God strengthens the hands of his people. For generations, he has brought the exiles back. He stirred up their hearts to serve him. He strengthened them every step of the way. So even when Nehemiah is discouraged, he prays. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. We followed the scenes and the schemes of Satan. The first scheme is to destroy Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah says, that's fine, whatever. The next scheme, they want to destroy his reputation. That's fine, that's in God's hands. What's the third scheme that they want to do? To destroy his holiness, to cause him to sin. What greater scheme can you have against a man of God than to cause him to sin? This is a more nuanced temptation. It's harder to spot. You may not have realized it as you were reading it or hearing it read the first time. This is what they're after. They haven't been able to destroy his life. They haven't been able to destroy his reputation. They want to destroy his holiness. Look at verses 10 through 14. You're introduced to this man, Shemaiah. And it becomes clear as we hear the passage read that he purports to be a prophet. We don't know anything about this prophet. Prophets really aren't mentioned a whole lot in Ezra and Nehemiah. When we did hear of prophets way back in Ezra, we heard of great godly men like Haggai and Zechariah. Now we come to this guy, Shemaiah, and if he's the only prophet they've got, they're in big trouble because it becomes clear he's not a man of God. He's a prophet who's acting like a pagan. For whatever reason, he's confined to his home at this time, so that's why Nehemiah has to meet him there at his house. And so Nehemiah comes, and, and this man says, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. Now, number one, this isn't the first death threat that he's gotten. He's already been, uh, they've attempted to lure him away. So he's getting probably tired of death threats on his life. But you would think if somebody's out to kill you, this would be good news to get a heads up. That you would want a warning about it. This should be a good thing, right? You may read this and wonder, whose side is this man on? It becomes clear when you watch carefully what he says. Do you remember back in verse 2? How did Sanballat begin his conversation, his letter? Come and let us meet together. And then uh, at the end of that open letter, it said, come, let us take counsel together. Now in verse 10, Shemaiah, somebody else is speaking, and he says, let us meet together. Do you hear how similar these things sound? Shemaiah sounds a whole lot like Sanballat. It's very clear 
that his words are Sanballat's words. He's a prophet for hire. He's doing the dirty work, and he's trying to cause Nehemiah to sin. He's saying, listen, since they're after you, you need to go into the temple for safety, for security. Now, we might think about our church, and we think, well, there, there's some safety going on here. I mean, we, uh, if, I, number one, most of you already know, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to the weather. My wife lets me know if I need to pay attention to the weather. And if it gets bad enough that I can't continue whatever I'm doing at the house, we can come here. Because downstairs in the offices, that's like a fortress. Have y'all seen those cinder blocks? You're really safe here at the church. Praise God. And so uh, we think, no big deal. This, this prophet, this Shemaiah is saying, Nehemiah, you need to go to church and be safe. And that's not what he's saying. He's using a word here. Many people believe that he's referring to the holy place. He's telling Nehemiah, you need to go into the temple, and you need to go past where you're allowed to go. We forget this so often because we're not as familiar with the Old Testament. We don't know as much about the temple. They're telling Nehemiah to go to a place that only the high priest can go, and even then only the high priest can go once a year. He's causing Nehemiah, he's tempting Nehemiah to break God's law to save his own skin. Well, Nehemiah recognizes what's going on. He replies in verse 11, should such a man as I run away? <clears throat> he's saying, what kind of leader would I be? Think about how he's led the people back in chapter 4. He led them in the face of false accusations against lies and rumors. All those were being thrown around in chapter 4. And Nehemiah led them in the face of that. They, Nehemiah led them in the face of, of battle. They thought an army was coming, and so they took the sword in one hand and the trowel in the other hand, and they were ready to work. They were ready for battle. Come what may, he led them to be ready for whatever the future held. But now, when it comes to his own life, is he going to continue to be a faithful leader? Is he going to make wise decisions when it refers to himself, when the lies are not about the people in general but about him specifically? Is he going to lead the people well when it's not just, hey guys, there may be a battle. No, there may be an assassin coming for him. Is he going to be faithful? He says, what kind of a leader would I be should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? Nehemiah understands something about God's holiness that most of us forget. He understands this is not his place. It would not be right for him to break God's law in order to try to save his life. While we worship according to a new covenant, we worship differently. God's holiness has not changed. God's word has not changed, and so we ought to take it as seriously as Nehemiah does. He says, I will not go in. Verse 12, and I understood and I saw that God had not sent him. Nehemiah understands that this man purporting to be a prophet is acting like a pagan. He has no better theology than the world has because this false prophet is telling him to break God's law. You wonder, how do you know if a prophet is telling you the truth? Does what they say measure up with God's word? We live in a day and time when the canon is complete. We have all of God's word. We don't have to wonder if God is going to give us new prophecies today. God has spoken, and he's spoken perfectly and finally through his son, through the completed canon of Scripture. But if somebody should come up to you and say, I have a fresh word from the Lord, well, you take that fresh word and you measure it against the Scriptures. And if it says the same thing that the Scriptures say, it's not a fresh word, it's an ancient word, and it's trustworthy, and you didn't need that prophet to tell you because it was right there in God's word. 
But if they come up to you with a fresh word and it's not in God's word, then it's not fresh, it's deadly and you need to ignore it. You search the scriptures because they testify of our Savior. He understood and saw that God (coughs) had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Wait a minute, that's what they accused him of doing back in verse 7. They said, Nehemiah, we've heard you've hired prophets there in Jerusalem to announce that you're the king, that you're going to be a king, you're a good candidate to be king. They accused him of hiring prophets. And what has he done? Sanballat has hired a prophet. It's very clear that Tobiah and Sanballat have hired this man, Shemaiah. He's not from the Lord. Verse 13, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way, and sin. Do you see that progression in that verse? I should be afraid, I should act in this way, and sin. When we look at our own lives, when we look at the lives of many saints of church history, we understand sometimes our most grievous sins are committed out of fear. If the enemy can cause us to be afraid, we start getting really stupid. We forget all the truths that we've learned from God's Word. We don't act according to the Scriptures. We act according to our feelings, and we're afraid. We act on them, and we sin. That's what Sanballat, through this prophet Shemaiah, wants Nehemiah to do. He wants him to sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Oh, Nehemiah, you're supposed to be a man of God. You're supposed to lead the people fearlessly even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of hostility and rumors and lies. But, oh, Nehemiah, when it came to yourself, you couldn't stand firm. That's what they want to say. But by God's grace, that's not Nehemiah's testimony. Once again, Nehemiah takes it to the Lord in prayer. Verse 14, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. We've been focused on this false prophet Shemaiah, but we understand that there are a lot of voices who've been discouraging Nehemiah. There have been lots of people causing him to wonder, what is the Lord's will for my life? What what should I do right now? Where's all this discouragement coming from? One man said Shemaiah's was only one voice, and an impressive chorus of discouragement. We don't even know who this prophetess is. We don't know all these other acts that were done, but they were all intended to make him afraid. As we've seen before, Nehemiah is praying not vindictively. He's praying that the Lord's justice would be done. That's the heart of his prayer. Lord, remember them for what they have done. Judge sin as you have promised to judge sin. Well, we've made it through these three schemes, and while they're directed against one man, Nehemiah, we understand that these schemes work for anybody. When you look at the New Testament, you see that these schemes are still in Satan's arsenal, and we look to the Scriptures to respond to them just as Nehemiah has done. But now the tide turns. We finally made it to the point that we've been looking for, verse 15. We come to the bookend of this whole section of chapters 4 through 6. Chapter 4, verse 6 said, so we built the wall. And then you got all these three chapters of conflict, and you're thinking, how do they build the wall with all this going on? But now we arrive at verse 15 of chapter 6. 
So the wall was finished. The wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Now, it's impressive enough that the wall is completed, period. They face lots of opposition. Many people would have faltered under the weight of this oppression. But the wall is finished in a record amount of time, 52 days. As a reminder for those who are like me, you might be a little slow on the math. You, this, this is less than two months, all right? Think about trying to get one bedroom of your house renovated right now. Two months. That's good. That's a good amount of time. They're building an entire wall around a city in less than two months. Do you remember how long Nehemiah prayed at the beginning of the book? He prayed and he fasted for nearly four months. Nehemiah spent more time in prayer than it even took to rebuild the wall. This is clearly a sign that God is at work amongst his people. and Everybody realizes it. Verse 16, when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem. What's been the point of all three of these chapters? The enemies of God have wanted the exiles to be afraid, but now the enemies of God, the nations, they are the ones who are afraid. What happened? God happened. God worked. They understood that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Now we hear that and we think, great, that's the end of the story, right? That's what Nehemiah is all about. It's about rebuilding a wall. If the book of Nehemiah is only about rebuilding a wall, then, then we got chapter 7 through 13 about something. The wall is complete. There's more to the story. And we would expect a big celebration to come. They've done this great work. The celebration will come, but it's not happening now. It will be later in the book. In fact, the narrator wants us to understand uh, that there's more to the story. He wants us to understand that we're expecting a great celebration. He wants us to understand reality. We didn't keep reading because I wanted you to, to feel a bit of that suspense. We would think good things are coming. But look at what happens in verses 17 and following. The conflict continues. Verse 17, moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. There's this letter-writing campaign, and you wonder, why is this going on? Why are all these people, the nobles of Judah, why are they defending an enemy of God? Well, it becomes clear in verse 18, because they're all embedded together. Tobiah, the Ammonite, a foreigner, has married into the people of God. And as we've seen earlier in the book, just by way of reminder, that's not an issue with ethnicity. It's an issue with holiness. Tobiah, the one who's an enemy of God, he's married into the Jewish people. It says in verse 18, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him. They've given Tobiah their word. That's why the nobles of Judah didn't want to do the work on the wall. That's why the nobles of Judah are seeking to undermine everything that Nehemiah and the others are doing. But it says, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. He's married into a leading family. If you looked all the way back at Ezra chapter 2, that long list of names, one of those names near the top was this family of Ara. And Tobiah has married into this leading family. And what's more than that, his son has followed his example. His son Jehoahan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Now, understand that these names don't mean anything to you. I get that. 
But if you look back carefully at chapter 3, at those list of names of all the people building the wall, Meshulam is one of them. So somebody who's doing the work of the wall is having his work undone by his own family. It causes you to wonder, what about that guy? Can we even trust that guy? Nehemiah doesn't tell us. Is Meshulam a good guy and his family has turned against him, or has he been a double agent the whole time? Sometimes that's life and ministry. You're just not quite sure what to make out of somebody. But the love fest keeps going. The letter-writing campaign continues. Verse 19, it says, Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. So these nobles, the people who are supposed to be the leaders in Judah, they keep coming to Nehemiah and they say, You know that Tobiah, he's not such a bad guy. He's not that bad after all. He's a really nice guy. Nehemiah, you should get to know him. We saw him the other day. He helped an old lady cross the street. He carried her groceries for her. He's not such a bad guy, Nehemiah. You really need to get to know him. Nehemiah, you're being too rigid. Nehemiah, you need to compromise. Nehemiah, can't you bend just a little? Tobiah has married in to the leading families of our land. Why have you got to be so harsh with him? But you see, that's a temptation that we've seen through the whole book, the temptation to compromise. God's people are always tempted to do God's work the world's way. Nehemiah needs us to understand that, yes, the work on the wall is done, but that's not the end of the work. So we're going to see the rest of the book is about rebuilding a people of God. The temptations continue. The conflict continues. Nehemiah's message is not that all of this will come to an end in this life. His message to us is to persevere even in the midst of all of this oppression, all of this conspiracy, all of this suffering. So as Christians, what do we do with this? We're to look to our God who has been our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, as we sang about earlier. Is that not the message of Ezra and Nehemiah? that we've seen God at work time and time and time again. Things have happened that only God can do, that he's worked in the hearts of pagan leaders. He's stirred up the hearts of apathetic people. He's accomplishing things in record time. Only God can do these things. But it doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect in this life. Conflict will continue. Temptations will continue. So let us resolve to handle temptations like Christians. Let us handle conflict like Christians, which means we shouldn't be surprised when they happen. We should be ready for them when they happen. Pastor Laramie read earlier a wonderful passage, a familiar passage that we're all, most of us know, Romans 8, 28 through 30. I want us to keep going in that passage for just a moment as we tie all of this together. Romans 8, 31, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on the glorious truths of salvation, and he says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if we rip that verse out of context, we think that's our, our gold star, that we are bulletproof, we can do anything we want. We know that's not true. In fact, if you looked earlier in the passage, it's talking about suffering in the Christian life. But even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of opposition and conspiracy and all the things that we see in Nehemiah 6, if God is for us, then who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Sanballat will, and Tobiah will, and Geshem, and Shemaiah, and Noadiah, and all of the enemies of God. They will bring charges against God's elect, against those who are in Christ. But it is God who justifies, not our enemies. Who is to condemn? Those same names I just told you. All of the enemies of God, they will charge us, they will condemn us, but we're not looking for confidence from them. We are looking to Christ. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Satan will try, the enemies of God will try, but who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or ridicule, or intimidation, or discouragement, or fear, or compromise, or slander, or threats? All of the schemes of Satan that we've seen in Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6. What will separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what we're to do with these chapters in Nehemiah. When we think about this opposition, this condemnation, we take it to Christ because Christ is the one who will hold us fast. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the comfort that is found in your word. Lord, we understand that the schemes of Satan that worked so well in the past work very well in the present. Lord, we don't know what schemes he has in store, but we know what you have in store for us. Father, you have promised that those you have predestined, you've called, and those you've called, you've justified, and those you've justified, you have glorified. It's as good as certain. You will preserve us. So may we persevere in light of this truth. May we continue the work, not just the work, the physical work that's in front of us, Lord, but the spiritual work. Lord, would you work through us mightily by your word and by your spirit. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The people of God in Jerusalem understood that the work they were doing was not the end of the story. They were looking for a far greater Jerusalem. We often call it heaven. Revelation 21 speaks of it as the new Jerusalem on the new heavens and the new earth. When we look at the, uh, the conspiracies, the fights that go on in Nehemiah, we understand that they had an end view in focus. We so often forget to look forward to the end when Christ takes us to be with him. So as we sing and we respond, I know that uh, we've been working on this hymn on Wednesday nights. We sang it last week while many of you were out. Reflect on the truth of this song and the hope of heaven that we have. Jerusalem, my happy home. Would you stand as we sing? <laughs>